next is Cover to Cover, Jennifer Stone Stonestro. Stay with us. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, July the 29th, 2008. <laughs> you think we've hit bottom. Oh, no, there's a bottom below. You remember Malvina Reynolds' song? Uh, yes, you think you've hit bottom. Oh, no, there's a low below. The low you know. You think you've hit bottom. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I've had it this week. I searched last night. I searched for things that I thought were the ultimate in uh, absurdo stupidisms. Um, I put my favorite uh, Einstein quote up over my typewriter. Einstein said, Two things are infinite the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the universe. I looked up here. I found something. <laughs> it's called Guantanamo Baywatch. And <laughs> never mind. I, I have to read it to you. It's a letter, um, uh, an exchange between a Lieutenant Colonel Edward uh, M. Bush, an attorney for the Navy, and a Clive Stafford Smith, a lawyer representing detainees held by the United States at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. Um, Smith is also director of the nonprofit organization Reprieve. Now, most of us know about the organization Reprieve. Uh, okay, so the Lieutenant Colonel Ed Bush, the attorney for the Navy, uh, discovered contraband clothing at Guantanamo. Here's his letter regarding the discovery of contraband clothing that is at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. And he writes to the lawyer for um, the uh, uh, detainee, Dear Mr. Stafford Smith, your client, Shaker Amir, was recently discovered to be wearing Under Armour briefs and a Speedo bathing suit. Coincidentally, Mohammed El-Karani, who is represented by Zachary Katznelson of Reprieve, was also recently discovered to be wearing Under Armour briefs. That's A-R-M-O-R, briefs. The items were not issued to the detainees by Guantanamo personnel nor did they enter the camp through regular mail. We are investigating this matter to determine the origins of the above contraband 
and ensure that parties who may have been involved understand the seriousness of this transgression. As I'm sure you understand, we cannot tolerate contraband being surreptitiously brought into the camp. Such activities threaten the safety of the staff, the detainees, and visiting counsel. In furtherance of our investigation, we would like to know whether the contraband material or any portion thereof was provided by you or anyone else on your legal team. We are compelled to ask these questions in light of the coincidence that two detainees represented by counsel associated with reprieve were found wearing the same contraband underwear. Thank you, as always, for your cooperation. <laughs> this is the response from Clive Smith. Uh, regard the issue of underwear, dear Commander. Thank you very much for your letter, which I received yesterday. I will confess that I have never received such an extraordinary letter in my entire career. Knowing you as I do, I do not attribute this allegation to you personally. Obviously, however, I take accusations that I may have committed a criminal act very seriously. In this case, I hope you understand how patently absurd it is and how easily it could be disproved by the records in your possession. I also hope you understand my frustration at yet another unfounded accusation against lawyers who are simply trying to do their job, a job that involves legal briefs, not the other sort. Let me briefly respond. First... Neither I, nor Mr. Katznelson, nor anyone else associated with us here at Reprieve, uh, has had anything to do with smuggling unmentionables, quotes, unmentionables, to these men. Nor would we ever do so. Second, the idea that we could smuggle in underwear is far-fetched. As you know, anything we bring in is searched, and there is a camera in the room when we visit the client. Does someone seriously suggest that Mr. Katzelson or I have been stripping off to deliver underwear to our clients? Third, your own records prove that nobody associated with my office has seen Mr. Amer for a full year. Thus, it is physically impossible for us to have delivered anything to him that recently surfaced on his person. Surely you do not suggest that in your maximum security prison, where Mr. Amir has been held in solitary confinement almost continuously since September 24, 2005, and where he has been more closely monitored than virtually any prisoner on the base, your staff have missed the fact that he has been wearing both Speedos 
and Under Armour for twelve months. It was therefore patently clear that my office had nothing to do with this question of lingerie. However, I am unwilling to allow the issue of underwear to drop there. It seems obvious that the same people delivered these items to both men. <laughs> and it does not take Sherlock Holmes to figure out that members of your staff, either the military or the interrogators, did it. Getting to the bottom of this would help ensure that in future there is no shadow of suspicion cast on the lawyers who are simply trying to do their job. So I have done a little research to help you in your investigations. I had never heard of Under Armour briefs, that's in quotes, until you mentioned them. My internet research has advanced my knowledge in two ways. First, Under Armour apparently sports a U in its name. Okay, that's, I'll spell it. Uh, under, U-N-D-E-R, Armour, A-R-M-O-U-R is the correct spelling, yes. Which is significant only because it helps with the research. Second, and rather more important, this line of underpants is very popular among the military. One article stated, quote, a specialty clothing maker is winning over soldiers and cashing in on war. Founded in 1996, Under Armour, with a U, makes a line of tops, pants, shorts, underwear, and other, quote, performance apparel, unquote, designed for a simple purpose, to keep you warm in the cold and cool in the heat. Unquote. <laughs> this stuff is obviously good for the men and women stationed in the sweaty climate of Guantanamo. As one soldier attests, quote, the only thing that would make them better is if the army would issue them. <laughs> I do not mean to say that it is an open and shut case proving that your military provided the underwear as I understand that other people use under armor. One group I noticed is amateur weightlifters who seem confused as to whether under armor gave them a competitive advantage. In the grand scheme of things, however, I would like to think we can all agree that interrogators or military officers are more likely to have had access to Messrs. Amir and El Garani than the USA Powerlifting Collegiate Committee. On the issue of the Speedo swimming trunks, my research really does not help very much. I cannot imagine who would want to give my client Speedos or why. Mr. Amer is hardly in a position to go swimming since the only available water is in the toilet in his cell. I should say that your letter brought to mind a sign in the changing room of a local swimming pool that showed someone diving into a lavatory and which bore the caption, We don't swim in your toilet, so please don't, <coughs> euphemism, in our pool. 
I presume that nobody thinks that Mr. Amir wears Speedos while paddling in his privy. Please assure me that you are satisfied that neither I nor my colleagues had anything to do with this. In light of the fact that you felt it necessary to question whether we had violated the rules, I look forward to hearing the conclusion of your investigation. Yours sincerely, Clive A. Stafford Smith. Now, you see, it seems to me that in <laughs> in a world in which... <laughs> oh, never mind. I don't want to say how many children are dying of starvation every minute. Uh... What on earth gives these guys the right to waste their time, your time, my time, and taxpayers' money on this nonsense? Uh, speedos and armor briefs. I thought of the the wonderful, oh, was it Captain Quig and the strawberries? Yes. Uh, the, uh, the, what would we call it, the obsessions of these... Um, are they? They're, yes, they're um, obsessive compulsives, these people who go by the book. Um, yes. He wants to know how the underwear got on the bottom of one of his detainees. Uh, now, that piece I found in, in um, Harper's Magazine, I love Harper's. They have a section called Readings where they find these gems from all over. Uh, that one was called Guantanamo Bay Watch, and uh, it's dated December in 2007, and uh, there's a whole stack here. I, I think, I wish I had time to read them all. They're, they're just delightful. Uh, um, there's one, let's see, there's one, uh, it's about, it's uh, Joseph Stalin and... Sergei Eisenstein arguing about uh, uh, Eisenstein's movies. <laughs> yes. And there's another one, uh, Herbert Hoover. He He's worried about uh, uh, terrorism, yes, back in 1950. It's a wonderful letter by Allen Ginsberg in which he requests... Uh, Yes, he requests uh, aid from the government, the CIA. He wants charity for the arts. So he writes directly to the CIA and asks them to <laughs> send him uh, money. Uh, now, my most favorite is an analogy called a foreign policy you can't refuse. And it breaks down Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather and it shows you how the various characters in that movie represent uh, approaches to world affairs, yes. <laughs> Depending, yes, on whether you're uh, Tom Hagen, you remember the consigliere, or whether you're uh, Sonny, the, uh, the wild Santino, the uh, uh, violent son, or, uh, of course, Michael, the youngest crowd, uh, very interesting. Let's see. Now, the one, the one with Stalin in it, it's called A Tsar is Born. That's spelled T-S-A-R. Uh, <laughs> let me just read you a little tiny bit. It dates from 1947, 
and it's a conversation between Joe Stalin and um, uh, Sergei Eisenstein with a few remarks from uh, uh, Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yes, one of the actors is included, too. Uh, they have been watching the two-part Ivan the Terrible. And uh, the movie was released in 1944, and uh, it was delayed because Stalin banned it. Now, uh, some of the arguments here, <laughs> let me just read you a little bit. Joseph Stalin says to Eisenstein, have you studied history? Eisenstein says, uh, more or less. Stalin, more or less, I know a thing or two about history. The Tsar seems indecisive in your film, like Hamlet. Everyone suggests to him what should be done, but he can't make a decision himself. Ivan the Terrible's wisdom was to insist on a national point of view and not to allow foreigners into his country. Peter I was also a great sovereign, but he treated foreigners too liberally, opened the gates too wide. He allowed the Germanizing of Russia. Catherine allowed this even more. Was the court of Alexander I really a Russian court? Was the court of Nicholas I? No, they were German courts. Ivan the Terrible's remarkable enterprise was to introduce a state monopoly on foreign trade. Ivan the Terrible was the first to introduce it. Lenin was the second. <laughs> One of the actors, Andre Zedanoff, says... Your Ivan the Terrible came out looking like a neurasthenic. Stalin goes on to say, You need to depict historical figures correctly. For instance, it's wrong that Ivan the Terrible kisses his wife for so long. In those days, that wasn't allowed. And Ivan the Terrible was very cruel. You can show that. But you have to show why it was essential. One of Ivan's mistakes was that he didn't finish off the five major feudal families. If he had wiped them out, there would never have been a time of troubles. And he, he would execute someone, and then he would spend a long time repenting and praying. <laughs> God hindered him in this matter. He should have been more decisive, of course. We aren't very good Christians, but we can't deny the progressive role of Christianity at a certain stage of our history, it meant the Russian state was uh, turning around to close ranks with the West instead of orienting itself with the East. The actor Zadanov says, the film has too much misuse of religious rituals. Molotov says, this lends a patina of mysticism to the film which should not be emphasized uh, so strongly. Stalin says, historical images have to be depicted truthfully. A director can retreat from history. He has to work with his imagination. But he can vary only within the limits of the style of the historical era. <laughs> Your portrayal of Vladimir Storitsky is very fine. He was very good at catching flies. What a man! A future czar 
and he catches flies with his hands. You have to give details like that. They reveal the essence of a man. <laughs> this one goes on at great length. I love this one because I do remember my father saying that this was a test of uh, your physical prowess, your ability to catch flies with your hands, you know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Stalin as an art critic. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, let's see. Let me just uh, give you something from 1950. It gave me a chill down my spine. I was looking basically for laughs this week because I can't bear any more of this blood, but... Uh, this is not, I guess, funny. Uh, it's called Everybody Who's Anybody. And it's one of the Harper's extracts. This is in the issue of August 2008. And uh, it's a letter written in July of 1950 by J. Edgar Hoover. Director, of course, of the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And he's writing this letter to Admiral Sidney Sowers, special consultant to President Harry Truman. Uh, the uh, recipient of the letter, uh, Admiral Sowers, gave a non-committal reply uh, a week later. Anyway, the letter has uh, been released um, by the State Department last December, that is, December of uh, 2007. <laughs> it took them 57 years to let this one out of the box. Anyway, this is J. Edgar Hoover writing to uh, uh, an admiral in the Navy. Uh, he writes, My dear Admiral, for some months, representatives of the FBI and of the Department of Justice have been formulating a plan of action for an emergency situation wherein it would be necessary to apprehend and detain persons who are potentially dangerous to the internal security of this country. Plan envisions four types of emergency situations. One, attack upon the United States. Two, threatened invasion. Uh, three, attack upon United States troops in legally occupied territory. And four, rebellion. The plan contains a prepared document which should immediately, upon the existence of one of the emergency situations, be referred to the president for his signature, stating that to protect the country against treason, espionage, and sabotage, the attorney general is instructed to apprehend all individuals potentially dangerous to internal security. To make effective these apprehensions, the proclamation suspends the writ of habeas corpus. Remember, this is J. Edgar Hoover writing in 1950. He goes on to say, The plan also contains a joint resolution to be passed by Congress and an executive order for the president that will validate this proclamation. Next step is a prepared order from the Attorney General to the Director of the FBI to apprehend dangerous individuals, to conduct necessary searches and seize contraband. For a long period of time, the FBI has been compiling an index of names, identities, and activities of individuals 
found through investigation to be potentially dangerous. These names will be attached to a master warrant, which will serve as legal authority for the FBI to cause the apprehension and detention of the individuals. <laughs> the index now lists approximately 12,000 individuals, of whom approximately 97% are citizens of the United States. I'm going to repeat that. His list, his uh, list of people who uh, <laughs> are potentially dangerous, to quote him, uh, it's approximately 12,000 individuals of whom approximately 97% are citizens of the United States. And the proclamation, of course, would suspend the writ of habeas corpus. J. Edgar Hoover goes on uh, here. He says, uh, <laughs> each FBI field division maintains an index of the individuals within its territory arranged so it may readily be used for apprehension purposes. <laughs> Upon apprehension, individuals will be delivered to the nearest jail for temporary detention and action by the Attorney General. The permanent detention of these individuals will take place in regularly established federal detention facilities. Plan calls for a statement of charges and a hearing for each detainee within a specified period. The hearing board to be appointed by the Attorney General will be composed of one judge of the United States or state court and two citizens. Let's see. Hearing procedure will give the detainee an opportunity to know why he is being detained. will permit him to introduce evidence in his defense. It will not be bound by the rules of evidence. Well, good. Good heavens, I was afraid, you know, they might be going to give the guys a, a break. Anyway, the hearing board may make one of three recommendations. One, that the individual be detained, paroled, or released. <laughs> this action by the board is subject to review by the Attorney General, and the Attorney General's decision on the matter will be final except for appeal to the President with my highest esteem and best regards, sincerely yours, J. Edgar Hoover. Okay, that's back in 1950. Uh, it looks like these guys are always getting ready, you know, to lower the boom, just in case, just in case. Okay. Uh, uh, this has been Jennifer Stone, and I've been reading to you from a bunch of uh, excerpts and letters that I found in Harper's Magazine, I love their section called readings because they always find things that, uh, you know, would be totally absurd if they weren't true. <laughs> it's frightening. Never mind. This weekend, uh, I'm going to go over to the city and see Sam Shepard's play, Fool for Love. If you are the least bit interested in Sam Shepard, I suggest you check out the current New Yorker. Um, I've decided that Sam Shepard is... Uh, part of my pantheon of great American playwrights. Uh, he's got a new play out in New York that he's directing called Kicking a Dead Horse. And if that doesn't sum up <laughs> what Sam Shepard has been doing all his life, yes, Kicking a Dead Horse. Uh, anyway, over in the city, my friend Gene Shelton is directing a production of Fool for Love, which was written back in 19... 
83. And I'm dying to see it because it's another another play about brother, sister, incest. And I just saw um, Tis Pity She's a Whore, which is a, a Baroque uh, version of um, incest. And I think that the uh, Sam Shepard play has a lot more to tell us. Anyway, uh, there's something about Sam Shepard that is so 21st century. You know how it is. He's always in a motel somewhere with uh, neon signs blinking in the distance. It's the, uh, what is it, uh, the CDC me, sad sack, sorrowful life. Uh, I think, uh, yes, I think Sam Shepard is the theater man of the hour. He and Neil Labute, whom I will get around to next time. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. In darkness From the ones who Walk in light Light them up, boys There's your picture Drop the shadows Out of Hey, Michael the Web Guy here. If you enjoy listening to KPFA online, why not visit kpfa.org and join the KPFA family? It's just $25 a year. Your membership will help KPFA continue to provide important on-air and online content that is unique and informative. Visit